There is a, a section of scripture that we're going to look at today with our emphasis being the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this passage of scripture I would submit is one that many of us have read over quickly. It's only 13 verses. It's the only place in all of the gospel where we have any mention of Jesus' childhood. There are some false gospels like the Gnostic gospels and Gospel of Thomas, for instance, which records some experiences of Jesus' life that never happened. One of the most interesting ones that I remember reading was that when Jesus was a young boy, he used to play in the mud with all of his friends, and they used to make little clay pigeons. The difference was that Jesus' pigeons would fly. (laughs) You know, there are those people who want to attribute to Jesus a childhood that is unlike anything that we've ever known. And yet, Luke doesn't do that. He's precise in his description of Jesus growing into manhood. And so, let's look at what he has to say to us in chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. When Mary and Joseph had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And Jesus, the child, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was on him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him along with their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 544 years ago, there were a group of wealthy businessmen in Florence, Italy, And they decided that they would commission some miners to mine a large piece of marble, eight tons, and bring it 60 miles into the center of town. And there they would commission a sculptor to make a statue out of marble of David. They commissioned a man to begin, and he worked on it for two years. 
And in two years, he began to form the torso and the legs and the feet. And after two years, he quit. He walked away, and the marble sat there on its side for ten years. After ten years, another sculptor was commissioned. The wealthy businessman thought he was capable of finishing the task, but after just a couple of weeks, they fired him. And for the next 25 years, that marble lay there in the center of town. Finally, after that time, the authorities decided they had had enough. And they ordered that the marble be turned up on its end and hauled away. But before they could haul it away, a man stepped forward and said, I will sculpt it. And they agreed to take a shot. The first thing he did was to build a fence around that marble and in the center of the town, in that square, he'd built a large fence, 10 feet high. Inside the fence, he built a little shack in which he lived for two years. Nobody saw him work. In fact, nobody really knew that he was working, except occasionally they would hear a chisel sound on the marble. And after two years, totally out of sight and mind, on January 25th, 1504, Michelangelo took down the fence. He dismantled the shack. And what was left was a masterpiece. 17 feet high. The statue of David, David. You can see the original in the Academy of Art there in Florence. You can see a replica right near the baptistry in the center of that great city. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we talked about another sculptor. The Bible talks about him this way. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. Out of the dust he created his body. By his spirit, he created a human spirit. He breathed into him. And Adam became a living soul. Body, spirit, and soul. But as we mentioned last week, as Adam determines to follow the, his own will, his own soulish nature, rather than the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to his human spirit, devastation occurs. His God consciousness falls into his self-consciousness, and the two, the spirit and the soul, become totally indistinguishable. And that's what Paul means when he says to the Ephesians, remember who you were. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, in your soulish nature, in your fallen human nature, you had no capacity whatsoever to apprehend spiritual truth. Adam's capacity to please God was lost. Adam's capacity to commune with God was lost. His spirit was lost in his soulish, selfish, fleshly desires. And that's the condition of every human being. 
in our natural condition. We are spiritually like blocks of marble, unable to hear, unable to see, unable to apprehend spiritual truth. We're that lost. And yet the testimony of Scripture is that God's will is never thwarted. He appoints a sculptor who never resigns, who is never fired, who succeeds where everyone else fails. And that sculptor's name is the Holy Spirit. He alone can recreate us into the pre-fall state. He alone can resurrect our spirit. He alone can separate our spirit from our soul. That's why Jesus says to those to whom he speaks, those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to them. He knows that unless the Holy Spirit resurrects a man and woman, by resurrecting their human spirit, they're incapable of hearing spiritual truth. They're incapable of receiving words of life. All that is left to them is death and judgment. A few months ago, I asked a group of people, true or false, Jesus came as our example. I mean, you hear it all the time. People say, oh, I don't, I'm not a Christian. I don't really believe in Jesus, but I try to follow his teachings. And really what they mean by that is that they believe that they can earn the favor of God. It would be like me saying, I don't really believe in, I'm not an astrophysicist, I don't believe in all of that stuff, but I'm building a space shuttle and I'm trying to follow NASA's example. (laughs) Not even a spirit-led Christian can gain the favor of God. Our favor, the favor of God, our acceptance of God is the product of another I love what Spurgeon says. All that Christ has as perfect man is yours. As perfect man, the Father delighted in him. O believer, God's acceptance of Christ is your acceptance. For do you not know that the love which the Father set on him, he now sets on you? For all that Jesus did is yours. And nowhere is that clearer than in the childhood of Jesus. In 13 verses, Luke shows us the Holy Spirit sculpting Jesus into the second Adam, a perfect model of what a perfect man was meant to be. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there with Jesus. Of all the definitions of sanctification that I've heard, I like this one the best. The Holy Spirit is making you into a perfect replica of Jesus. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit now is making you into a perfect replica of Jesus. And if that's the case, then he will start with you the same place he started with Jesus. In your spiritual childhood. Of all the gospel writers, Luke is the only one who gives us an account of Jesus' childhood. And yet for Luke, 
These 13 verses are the climax, the culmination of every birth narrative, every story of Jesus' birth that Luke gives. You say, why do you say that? Because for Luke, the life and ministry of Jesus begins at Passover. Somebody has said that the childhood of Jesus is like a walled garden into which no one has ever looked. Luke looked in, and he gives us a pretty good glimpse. So taking that garden metaphor, let's look behind the wall. First of all, notice the season. Now, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, as you may remember, Passover was one of three great annual feasts celebrated by the Jews. And every Jewish male was required to keep that feast. If a Jewish male and his family lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, they were required to come into the city. If, on the other hand, they lived outside of that 15-mile radius, they were allowed to celebrate Passover wherever they were. And Luke tells us that every year, Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. You say they must have lived within 15 miles. No, actually it was 70 miles north. They lived 70 miles away in Nazareth. And every year they'd come to Passover. Now think of that. Every year Jesus came to Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, the first year of his life, he came to Jerusalem twice. When he was eight days old, and then at Passover. Think of it. Every year, they brought the Prince of Peace to the City of Peace. Every year that the people of God celebrated their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, Mary and Joseph would bring the Son of David to the City of David. And Luke says... He picks up Jesus' story at age 12. You say, is 12 important? You bet it is. At age 12, every Jewish male was called a child of law, the son of the law. At age 12, he'd begin to fast. At age 12, he'd begin to dedicate himself to the study of the Torah. At age 12, he'd begin to prepare himself for manhood, his bar mitzvah, his place in the nation of Israel. You see, in terms of season, it was springtime. Not only in the life of the Israelis, but in Jesus' life. It was growing time. Second, let's look at the soil. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. I remember a sermon I heard in seminary from a student who said, this text is proof positive that the Bible is full of myths. No parent would ever leave their child in a strange city for three days without knowing it. Even then, I thought it depends on the kid. <laughs> I, 
I, I remember years ago in Somerset, a family that left their child in the garage, in his car seat, in the back seat of the car. And two hours later, when they're turning the light out, the wife says to the husband, how is JT when you put him to bed? The husband said, I didn't put him to bed. And they ran into the garage to get him. <laughs> now, that can happen. But in the case of 12-year-old Jesus, it's more complicated than that. It's thought that at the time of Passover, at this time in Jesus' life, there could be as many as half a million people, pilgrims, visitors to Jerusalem. And the custom was this that wives and children and servants would start out first. And then later in the day, the men would begin their journey. So there'd be two groups, women and children and servants, and then men would come hours later. And the theory was that men walk faster. But the truth is probably that men didn't want to spend time with their kids. <laughs> So Joseph would have thought that Mary had Jesus, and Mary might have thought Joseph had him, because after all, he's 12 and he's almost a man. But when the men meet up with the women on that first day, having traveled a whole day's journey, they discover that he's missing. And so they travel back a whole day. And then on the third day, they find him in the temple. So there's no myth at all. It makes total sense. One day out, one day back, find him on the third day. And when they find him, Luke says, Mary says, why would you treat us like that? And then you've got Jesus' answer, and it is an answer that is well-known, but unfortunately, every English translation that I've seen is found wanting. Really what Jesus says is, did you not know that I must be busy in the affairs of my Father? Did you not know that I must be busy in the affairs of my Father? Now, the Jewish legal code, the Talmud, required that every visitor to Jerusalem for Passover had to stay at least two days. Now, whether Mary and Joseph were there two days or all seven days, that's an open question. But what isn't an open question is the fact when they leave, it's the end of Passover, and Jesus stays behind to attend to the affairs of his father. Now, what are those affairs? Luke tells us in, in verse 40 and in the final verse of this section. He says, Jesus grew and became strong. Now that is an incomplete English translation of the Greek. Literally what the Greek says is, Jesus grew and became strong in spirit. You see, the affairs of his father are that his soul is fed by his spirit being nurtured by the word of God. When he says to them, 
Did you not know that I must be busy in the affairs of the Father? It meant, did you not know that I must feed my spirit with my Father's words so that my spirit and soul become conformed to him? Then third, notice the seed. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. One time, Wagner's piece was being played in Paris. And the great Italian composer Rossini was there, and someone asked Rossini to give his opinion of Wagner's piece. And Rossini said, I cannot judge a work upon a single hearing, and I have no intention of hearing it again. (laughs) How different from Jesus. It said that in Jesus' day, listening to teachers and asking questions was the main way in which learning occurred. In verse 46, Luke tells us that Jesus is doing just that. Now, some believe he's teaching, but there's no evidence of that. In fact, the Greek word for questions is to make requests. He's listening and making requests for more information. Someone has said his requests are probes designed to elicit decisions. He's a lot like his father. Remember when his father said to Adam, who told you you were naked? Remember when Jesus says to the woman at well, go get your husband. Where is he? You see, the Spirit drives him to stay in the temple long after his parents have left so that his soul might be filled with wisdom. Calvin said he gave them a taste of divine wisdom, and they marveled. Matthew Henry said, Methinks he is like Moses who gave Israel a taste of deliverance when he killed the Egyptian persecutor. But they rebuffed him. Like Moses, Jesus retires to obscurity until his time comes. For Moses, he retires to obscurity for 40 years. In Jesus' case, he retires into obscurity for 18 years. Then fourth and finally, notice the stock. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now think of it. Think of what this means. He determines to leave the house of his father to go and live in the house of Joseph. This is his second leaving, you know. His spirit is so alive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that it produces in him a desire not only to leave his father's throne in heaven, but to leave his father's house on earth to go and be a carpenter's son. You know how Luke captures that? By saying the favor of God was upon him. Think of the favor that it took for him to leave Jerusalem 
and to go and live in a place that Nathaniel would later say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Think of the favor it took to leave his father's house and go live in the house of a surrogate father. Think of the favor it took for him to leave the father's throne in glory to live a life as a poor, lowly carpenter. And think of the contrast between this Adam and the first Adam. The first Adam lives in a garden of paradise. And when he's tempted with the words, eat this fruit and your eyes will be open and you will be like God, he falls for it. But the second Adam dwells in poverty. And yet, when any temptation comes, he resists it. With his eyes, the eyes of his spirit wide open, with his soul filled with wisdom, he determines to be obedient. The obedient son of sinners so that when his heavenly Father looks at them and us, he can say, I find you complete in him. Five hundred and three years ago, in January, Michelangelo finished his work. He finished the work of others that began 40 years earlier. Aren't you glad that when the Holy Spirit began his work in you, he's the one who started it? He's the one that continues it? And he will be the one that finishes it? What he starts, he always finishes. And when he finishes it, it will be a perfect replica of his greatest masterpiece, who is Jesus. You're going to look just like him. You will be strong in spirit. You will be filled with wisdom. And the favor of the Lord will be on you. But now, like Michelangelo, the Holy Spirit is working behind a fence. Almost no one sees him. Almost no one hears him. He's out of sight and mind. But for every Christian, his work ought to be front and center in your life. Because when you get right down to it, what he is fashioning is not a statue out of marble but a trophy of his grace that will last forever. John said, when we see him, Jesus, we will be like him. And that work of forming us has already begun. You say, okay, what am I to do with all of this? How am I to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> How about 
How about giving him thanks for his deliverance of you? How about being willing to stay in his presence after all the religious people have gone? How about listening to his requests or his word and then making requests of yourself? How about being willing to obey him wherever he leads you? Even if it's into poverty and obscurity or a place no one would ever want to go. I'd say that would be a good start. What do you think? Think about that. Amen. Amen.